0: Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me not only in my presence but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Word of God, word of life, thanks be to God. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Well, today I have three stories for you to start off stories because COVID has been pretty hard on all of us. It's been pretty hard on certain segments of our population, the elderly, the, the vulnerable, but also on this special little group called influencers. If you don't know what an influencer is, they're very, very, very Z-list celebrities who have been chosen because they're pretty or they look cool or, or whatever. And they're paid money to have pictures taken of them in social media wearing certain glasses or shoes or nails or or whatever whatever it might be and the guardian newspaper out edit- of England talks about the issues around influences or around social media marketing in this way. It says, it's a world in which brands are cashing in by bottling up envy and using it to sell every fr- everything from overpriced shoes to fancy glasses, injecting a daily dose of paid for content into our news feeds without our knowledge. For those of us who will never be fashionable, beautiful, or beach ready enough, It means a slow, drip-drip of unrealistic lifestyles and unattainable body expectations that only serves to leave us feeling inadequate and quite possibly with a substantially lighter wallet. What it is, is almost the dark underbelly of marketing. Before, we would know a commercial when we saw it, we'd know an ad when we saw it, but now it's stuff that just shows up, crops up, and tells us, you should have this, and we think, okay, Well, it's gotten worse with COVID. And there's a new phrase that has crept in. Quarantine envy. And this is from the New York Times. Quarantine envy got you down? You're not alone. A beach house, a suburban home, a home without children, a home filled with family. These days, everyone wants something that someone else has. And so then this this New York Times piece highlights for us how influencers are getting destroyed by their own work today in the coronavirus season. She writes, When the coronavirus hit France, Leila Slimani, a popular French-Moroccan novelist, and her family left Paris for their country home. Must be rough. Once there, Ms. Slimani began writing a quarantine diary for the newspaper Le Monde. The response, especially from people in teeny Parisian apartments was so scathing, she apparently abandoned the series. When the billionaire, David Geffen, posted photos of his mega yacht on Instagram while he quarantined in the Grenadines, the backlash led him to turn his account private. Oh, the poor lambs. I so feel sorry for him. Quarantine envy. If if it's not a widespread term yet, it should be, this author writes. Envy, of course, is the joy-devouring emotion of craving what others have. Even before the pandemic, social media was linked to rising levels of the emotion. Social media magnifies and creates instant destructive envy, said Andrew Oswald, professor of economics and behavioral science at the University of Warwick in England, and also probably someone who sits on their front porch and tells kids to get off his lawn. He's also a co-author of a study on whether envy is societally harmful. Short answer, yes. They could have just asked the church, you know, we've been preaching against it for years. It's one of the seven deadly sins. But this professor continues, there's a globalization of envy, and in the longer run, we have to regulate it. The author of the article in the New York Times continues, I've, I've seen the discontent over the years in my day job, moderating reader comments. If you want to know the depravity of man, you just read the comments on newspaper articles online, just if you're wondering. Growing wealth disparity, along with ubiquitous social media, appears to have made us all less satisfied and snarkier. The pandemic has fueled the fire. Essential workers envy those working at home. People who were laid off envy those who weren't. Those homeschooling young children envy those who aren't. We all envy the rich. Those studying the topic find the reaction understandable. When people are miserable, their resilience to other bad things becomes reduced," said Dr. Oswald. "It's easier to shrug off others' good fortune when your life is okay. It's been a terrible time for many people, and the last thing they want to see is a millionaire's house with a giant lawn. All of this, all of this influencer uh, marketing and all of this social media envy placed in front of us, where they quite literally, as as the Guardian says, have bottled up envy, bottled up sin, to sell it." to us. With our lack of distractions during COVID time, now we can focus our, our attention on that envy, and we don't know what to do with it. Well, I know what to do with it. And I'm going to take that word envy, and we're going to put it up on a shelf right here, and we're going to come back to it in a little bit, because I have a second story for you. I told you I had three stories. The second one deals with this phrase, compassion fatigue. I, I, my wife's a nurse, and she, she works in a a nursing home, and and this is something that she and I have talked about quite a lot. This comes from Nashville from Channel 5 News back in August. Healthcare workers around the United States are treating COVID-19 for the sixth month straight. Dr. Chelsea Harris, the Executive Director of Lipscomb's University uh, School of Nursing teaches about the side effects of prolonged exposure to difficult situations. There's a devoted time that we spend on compassion, fatigue, and burnout, Harris said. A lot of times we tell ourselves that couldn't happen to me or I could never become fatigued of my compassion. That's why I do what I do or that's how I got into this. Harris explained it is fairly common for hospital workers to experience a form of compassion fatigue. She defines it as the physical, emotional, and spiritual result of chronic self-sacrifice or elongated exposure to tough situations that result in a person being unable to love, nurture, care for, or empathize with another person's suffering. It's when you give and give of yourself until hypothetically there is nothing left to give, she said. Harris said treating COVID-19 every day, could be leading some healthcare care workers to feel numb. Burnout, fatigue, numbness, emptiness. Where, where our service meets suffering. Suffering gets flesh and blood and bone put on it. And the reality is that we discover that we can't save the world. And we hit empty. Well, let's take that word, empty, that, that understanding of emptiness, and we're going to put it up on the shelf next to envy. So we have empty, we, we have envy, we have, we have empty or emptiness, and now I have my third story for you. I told you I had three. Just bear with me. Both bad things and good things come in threes. But this comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is where the, the people of Israel have come to Samuel and they said, we want a king. We want to be like all the other cool kids in town. All of them, all of them have kings. We want a king too. We want to sit at the, the cool kid table. And, and God says, okay, but tell them what a king is going to be like. And so Samuel comes to them and says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvests and to make his implements of war and the equipment, equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. If you notice, there was a word that kept on coming to us. It was a word, take, take, take. That is the picture of this king here that Israel so wants. And it's the picture quite often of kings for us too. Well, along with the three stories and our three words here, where we have envy, we have empty, and now we're going to take take, and we're going to put it up on the shelf. I have three other words for you today. One of them, the first one is arpogmos. It's a Greek word. We, we find it in verse 6 of, of our Philippians reading, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. I, ne- I need you to, to imagine with me for a second that you are Zeus or Athena, one of the Greek gods up there on Mount Olympus, and you're looking down upon the earth and you see a, a gorgeous uh, young woman or a gorgeous young man, and you say, I want that. And so you take them. Greek gods get bored. They're unhappy by nature. Hades, in fact, the, the god of the underworld, is known to envy human happiness. And so he was known for taking, snatching up, kidnapping people in the prime of their life when they're supposed to be the happiest and taking them to the realm of the dead. That would, you would find on tombstones in Greece. The point being that our pogmos is not talking about something to be exploited. It's not talking about something to be grasped, which is another term. It's, it's, the term means abduction. It means kidnapping. It means taking, snatching someone for your own desires. So our verse tells us he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But the closer rendering of it is Jesus did not consider abduction or taking something for his own desires, his own envy to fill that void in himself to consider it anywhere within the realm of God likeness. Because you see, the Greek gods, they were known for that. They were known for their envy. They were known for their taking. They were known for fulfilling their own wants and pleasures. And here, Paul comes to us and says, no, this Jesus is different. Well, remember the call from our reading in in Philippians in verses 3 and 4, where he tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This word is not about about Jesus leaving aside his godliness. It's about him changing for us what a God is and this call for us of what it means to be his. Our Pogmos is a word that should smite us, should kill us. It should drive home with with provocative means the reality of who this Christ is, uh, the reality of what kind of God he is, the reality of what kind of king he is. There's no envy, there's no self ambition. He takes that envy off our shelf and he throws it away, and instead, he becomes a slave to serve sinners. He became a human being in order that he might die. He was humbled. The, the word humbled there actually more closely resembles to be humiliated. You lose in battle and someone has their foot on your neck and is raising their sword above their head. He becomes a loser. He even says he became obedient unto death. Even more so, he beca- became obedient unto us. We come to him and we say, crucify him. And he says, okay. And so then he takes that cross Paul adds even death on a cross because it would have been humiliating. He wasn't to die in a sleep. He wasn't to die of old age. He was to suffer an execution at the hands of sinners. That he might be a God who descends into the deepest, darkest, dankest, most sinful parts of us to free us, to rescue us, even kill us to bring life. In our most envious parts, the parts we grasp at anything in order to, to, to feel alive, he throws it out that he might place himself there for you. Well, our second word is a Greek verb, kenao. It's where we find in, in verse seven, he emptied himself. Kenosis is this melting away. It was a medical term and it, it, it would be like you understanding the times when you've gotten butterflies in your stomach. Because because your spouse is near or, or or anxiety has hit you. You've lost your breath. The Greek poets would use it and actually connect it to being love sick. This love sickness, a love that longs for its lover. Well here this is a picture of Christ longing for us, and it hurts him. But he's never left numb. He melts away for us. His whole body is contorted over his longing, his love for us. And it's a different love from our our human compassion. We hit empty. Remember, we put that up on the shelf, this this emptiness, the, the point where our love gets actually turned into hate because we have no more love to give. Yet his love is an everlasting love. With Christ, Remember the Garden of Eden or Garden of Gethsemane where, where, where he's, he's anguished, he's sweating and the gigantic drops of, of, of sweat that were like drops of blood and we say it's because he's out of fear of death, out of fear of the cross. No, it's out of longing for you, pained over his love for you. The interesting thing is that he's God. He could do whatever he wants to do but instead the core of him, the heart of God in Christ melts away for your sake. This past week in our, in our readings that we're doing on, on Facebook, the book of Hosea came up. And Hosea is an interesting book because he's turned into a living parable. He's told by God, go find yourself a prostitute and marry her because you're going to be the image of Israel with me. I am their husband. They are my bride. And yet they go finding these other gods, these other husbands, these other, other lovers. And Hosea marries Gomer the prostitute and and she has children not from Hosea and yet he claims them as his own. And yet in chapter two, God comes to speak and he speaks of his love for the people of Israel and his love for us. And he says, I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." His persistent, everlasting love and longing continues into the ages, even in our perpetual sin and denial. He tells us that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, our last word is the word Kyrios. Most of us know it because we sing the Kyrie eleison in in church. It means Lord, King, Emperor, Absolute Ruler. It'd be where we'd get the name Caesar from. And the interpretation of this, it it comes out of those last few verses, verses 9 through 11, where it says that God exalts Jesus. Therefore, because of all this emptying and this, this becoming a slave and human being and all these things, He exalts Jesus and He gives Him a name above every name that by his name, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and, and confess that Christ is Lord, is, is Kyrios. Well, there's two views on this. One will say because of all that he went through, he's earned to, the right to be king, to be Lord, to be emperor. And so we see pictures of him sitting on a, on a, on a, 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 a gigantic throne with a huge crown and a scepter and, and, and all these things to, to give this picture of, of a Roman-like emperor but there's a different way to look at it. What ends up happening instead is that he changes lordship forever. He changes the lordship game. The, the definition gets destroyed because he's not like our king that we had that was taking, remember, in 1 Samuel 8. So we take that off the shelf and we throw it away. And instead, Lord becomes a, a baby born to die. He becomes a preacher who comes and forgives sin becomes one who empties himself to be filled to the brim with all my failures in order to give me himself by killing those failures on the cross. The Lord changes the term, this Lord, making it different so that all other lords become obsolete. And so Paul says to us, have the same mind in you. Think the same thing as was in Christ's mind. Confess the same truth of who Christ is for you. And this kills moralism. We we come to this reading, we think, okay, then I need to empty myself. I need to enslave myself to Jesus and to my neighbor. I need to... Be, I need to die to myself. I need to do all these things better and better and better. And no, that's not what happens. Instead, it's, it's the, it, it comes as death and resurrection to you. Because if we live in Christ, which we do, then we share in his sufferings. His kenosis, his emptying of himself is actually ours now. His his slaving of himself to us becomes ours. His humiliation becomes ours. His obedience becomes ours. As as Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so then also his cross becomes ours. And with that death comes life. Not a call to, to be these things on our own because we can't. Because in fact, we, you, you, you have died and you are now hidden with Christ in God. Moralism dies. It's gone. It's hidden. It disappears. Moralism seeks to make you better. Christ seeks to kill you and raise you. So gone is envy. We throw that out. Gone is emptiness. It's filled with Christ. Gone is taking because Christ comes to give. Gone is abduction. Gone is improvement. Gone are our own kingdoms. And now just Christ for you. He is yours. You are his. Thanks be to God. Amen.